Hello, my name is Bruno Rink. Uh, here we're doing the podcast, trying to answer the question, why does students dislike school? I'm here with Miss uh, Miss Fiona Spence, and um, uh, I'm glad to have you. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for asking me uh, to be a part of this. Uh, so today we're just going to give some input in uh, the history of the system of education, how it works, how it went, the main purposes of how it goes, and also alternative, uh, possible alternatives to the current system in order to make a better life and the better time in school for all the students and they have equal possibilities in school. So the, the school system it was first found around, the public school system was first found around the 18th centuries. Before that, the school was basically the parents teaching what they knew to the children. And the school, as we know, was only for the richer classes since they could afford the kids not having to work and go to another place to study there. In the 18th century, the most important part that happened was the Industrial Revolution. And because of that, the government wanted to create a system that would create better workers and employers. So the, the kids would basically go to school to learn how to work in, in factories and from that to be good employees. And then uh, after a long time, it stopped being related to the church that was the main, that was the main, uh, the main founder of the schools. And it started being only governmental. And this idea that we need workers in the factories stop being the main action of the school as I said as was supposed to create possibilities to fit in the world to the children but it didn't change the system in a way that would represent how this works do you have any thoughts on uh, the, this creation and how it affect the the system as it is today yeah for sure I think that there's it's a very difficult balance uh, between as you're saying uh, producing workers, producing future workers that are going to go out into the world and go and, and help the economy and progress us as a society. There's this one idea there that's very, okay, how do we take a student and make them uh, as good of a contributor to society as we possibly can to benefit everyone as a whole? But then there's the other idea that our students are individuals and our students have wants and needs and uh, preferences and they're unique in their personalities and what do they want. And what they want truly is often different than what society needs them to want. So for example, a lot of people, a lot of students um, prefer studying things like the arts. They get a lot of pleasure from studying the arts, but then we often tell our children well, you know, maybe the arts are interesting as a pastime, but this is what you should do to make sure that you earn enough money to pay your bills and to be a contributing member of society. And we steer our students away from their true passions, the things that they true and truly enjoy towards what we believe would be better for them in the long run. So it's a really interesting thing that maybe, I don't know if you want to comment on that. It's, it's, trying to figure out how do we educate our students? Do we push them towards what they actually truly enjoy or do we push them towards what will help them just have an easier life? I think the main here is that everybody needs to know 
at least some of everything. So it doesn't have to be as much as a school teach, but like you, you need to know how to add stuff. You need to know how to divide the stuff. You need to know how the basics of uh, almost every subject but the idea that almost all the subjects go into a profound level and you go into deep thoughts about it, it doesn't, it's not so totally supposed to be like that when you're looking for the perspective of the school, of the children, sorry. And um, also that everybody learns in a different way. Everybody is totally different in a matter of their passions, what they're good at, what they want to work to and what they don't want to work to. And everybody going to the same system. And if oh, and if you maybe you are a visual learner, and you also you also like logical, mathematical, or also linguistics, you're probably gonna go well in school. But if you're for some reason somebody that learns uh, by doing stuff, and you are and you are really good at uh, some sport or at sports in general, the chance that you're gonna be called uh, in quotes dumb by the system. It, it's really high. That's true. And you're bringing up a good point. Um, the curriculum. Yes, the curriculum uh, in a lot of sense, as exactly what you said, it, it promotes uh, certain skills over other skills. So that there is a hierarchy in terms of uh, if a student is good at certain things, they're considered a better student, just like you said. Um, now, the curriculum is a very interesting thing because the curriculum isn't static in that it's constantly changing, courses are changing, the requirements are changing actually fairly regularly. A good example of this is the ethics and religious culture course or program that's now throughout high school. So originally um, it used to be a moral and religious education course and then it, it changed a little bit on the way. There was a course called modern social, is social issues it switched to this ERC program. Then there's discussions right now about changing it again, about it's not, this program is not adequately educating our students in terms of providing them a diversity of, of cultural knowledge, different things. So our curriculum, as you say, it some in some areas it goes too much in depth, in some areas it's too vague. And the thing is, it does change over the years based on public opinion, really. So parents, students, teachers, everyone, um, they say their opinion on the different courses. Oh, look, our students are graduating and they don't know this information. Oh, look, our students have this course, but it doesn't really seem to be doing a good job. And actually they do alter the curriculum over time. The problem is ev what everyone thinks should be taught is different. And so how do you take how do you take all of these different opinions about what should be taught to the students as you, you, in your opinion, you said they should be taught all these different things, reading, writing, how to add in mathematics, things like that at a basic level, but someone else might think that, well, really maybe just learning a basic level of math isn't enough. So how do we take all these different ideas for curriculum and make one curriculum that all the students in all of Quebec need to follow? How do we do that? That's uh, a really good point and also the idea that a lot of people after they leave high school they stop worrying about high school at all so they don't care how high school uh, the high school is going and there's a lot I heard a lot when I said that 
uh, I would like to make a, a work question in the school system, et cetera, et cetera. Say, why do, why do you want to do that? The system is there. It works. It's fine. Why do you want to question about it? Uh, so oh, yeah. lots of people think, well, I went, to, I went through it a certain way. That was my experience. And thus the future generation should have the same experience. Yeah, exactly thinking like that is perfect that it should be like that mm -hmm. and uh i'll and I, I think it's really hard to determine the curriculum itself but the school uh learning and your life is going to be something so personal that most period of your time since you are born basically till you're 18 you are learning in a more and you can remember you are learning in a school environment i think it should be it should be something that is at least enjoyable to the students. And they have a choice. They can go into different areas. They can uh, use their different abilities. And uh, the way that it works is basically a lot of students that, uh, even in my class, a lot of students that I know are smart. They are good at stuff. But they simply don't have the incentive, the correct incentive to it. Or they're not useful for the, for the subject that is being taught. So... Uh, I believe that this idea that we should pay, uh, pay more care not to someone who is doing great, but someone who is not doing great. And I, I don't want to believe, and I hate to believe that this person is simply dumb. It, it has to be another reason. That's true. Um, generally, as you know, in our classroom, I, I say things sometimes like, let's ban the D word, the word dumb, or let's ban the S word, the word stupid, because they're, they're, we don't, these words just work to put people down instead of what, what our actual goal is, which our goal with students being in the classroom is to take these students and elevate them to a higher level, a higher level of understanding, a higher level of skill, a higher level of uh, enjoyment, interest, intrigue, curiosity, all these things. And then when we use words like that, as you were saying, yeah, when we look at a student, we shouldn't, we shouldn't use these labels that will just push them down. That doesn't help anyone, right? Yeah, um, exactly. And as you mentioned earlier about the different types of learners, well, there's the different types of learners and, and teachers, I think they do often try their best to, to teach in different ways with different activities to try to reach different types of students. But there's a lot of limitations in terms of you have this, as we've mentioned, the curriculum to cover, you have all these topics you have to cover and there's the fastest way to do it versus the best way to do it. So the best way, the most thorough way that addresses all of these different students who are unique and have different interests and different ways of learning. But a lot of the better ways of teaching take a lot more time. And if you do those ways, if you, if you have more hands-on projects all the time, which is fantastic, suddenly you get to the end of the year and you've only covered, you know, half or three quarters of the required material. So then we could talk about like this idea of exams, these idea of final exams and, and the implications of that. Um, yeah, uh, I think it's a really good point that it brought the final exams. And uh, I, I'm totally against the idea of having an exam because uh, it does, okay, so it's, let's say we have a multiple choice exam. It's totally fair that someone might get confused, know all the stuff and might get confused in one or another question and is totally nervous and it's gonna get a bad grade that is not gonna represent what this person knows. And then someone else that is didn't study is not qualified to doing that. And then goes to the exam, guesses a lot of the questions and get it right. A lot of the questions is this is definitely not showing what they know. 
I think the exam is just a way that they want to say, oh, yeah, we're doing fine. But in the same way, if you ask a high school student two months later uh, after the exam to do something that they learned for the exam, I doubt that they, they're going to remember. They're not going to remember that. That's true. And that's why the practical components are so much more valuable, even though I noticed that most of my students, when it comes to the practical components, they get amazingly high marks because they're learning way, way better. And they're able to think about their material better on a less stressful in a less stressful situation than an exam. Exams are so stressful for everyone, really. But it seems like our whole if we, we have to really look on a bigger uh, a bigger scale here because it's the whole system is built on this level of marking, grading students and evaluating them, putting them in a hierarchy. And it's really from, it's a bigger scale because we think about, okay, let's look at from the university level. How do we accept people into university? How do we decide who the best candidates are? Well, if they have like thousands and thousands of applicants, they don't have time to do interviews and follow up on um, letters of intent things like that so all they have are these marks which which how realistic are these marks as you were saying you leave an exam do you even remember what you studied for the exam anymore it's just you write it on the paper you you walk out it's gone so how accurate are those values how what about the student who you have a conversation with them and they have a very profound understanding of the material but it comes to the exam and they can't put their ideas onto paper so what about those students and then we have to just walk backwards. So we're talking about accepting people into university. We're talking about accepting people into college. Okay, so we have to prepare them if they're gonna be doing, if they're gonna be writing exams in college, we have to prepare them on how to write an exam. So they're not, if they're not uh, walking into those situations with no experience on how to sit and write an exam. So we have to train our students earlier in, in high school. So we have to give them exams and we have to figure out how to rank them. So that the colleges know who to accept. And it's a big, it's a big, a uh, scary, stressful system, but I'm not sure. I don't think anyone has truly thought of an alternative when we have the numbers, the quantities of students that we do. Yeah, it's since it's such a high number of students, the idea of having more personal projects and also more, uh, more personal stuff for the students in a way they're divided into the what they like and what they're good at it's really hard to be thought about and uh, I, I think like the biggest problem for exams itself and the system is that the whole idea of being or preparing you to the world is not a, it's not how it works because in a world uh if i'm in the real world and i don't know how to do something i'm not gonna simply sit there and say oh well, yeah i learned that in high school how oh how am i gonna do this no i'm simply gonna go to the internet search it up watch something and learn how to do it as i would do for a project if i don't know how to do some part of it so uh, I, I think that the whole idea of being prepared, the system preparing to life should be rethought. And also the idea that if you're going to change something in, a, in elementary school, in high school or college, or we need to change in university, we need to change in the whole system itself, because changing only one part is going to create problems to the other part. That's true. Exactly. That's, that's exactly what I... Uh was trying to say uh, yeah it's the age of information right we have all the information at our, our fingertips and if we don't know how to do something we're definitely definitely going to go look it up in the real world in the workplace there's no there's no uh 
moment where you can't just go and refer to your instruction manuals or um, the information that you need to solve a problem or answer a question, right? And exactly. And so, yeah, it's a very old system. But something you mentioned that's that's interesting is it has to change at all the levels. But I was just thinking to myself that the second you say the word reform, educational reform, people get very, very uncomfortable and scared and uh, defensive. And oh, why do we need an educational form? And oh, how is this educational form actually going to work? And often when implementing educational reforms and trying to change the system, it doesn't always go perfectly right away. There's a, a bit of bumps along the way. It takes time for um, the system to adapt and adjust and for teachers to change their curriculum and their way of doing and for students to um, to adjust to a new way of being taught and a new way of learning. And so the second you say the word educational reform, it's like people just want to run and not not take part of it, even though it's so necessary. It's so necessary. And like we were saying earlier on, we were talking about how um, how people generally, they were taught a certain way and they were taught certain information. And so when they see the younger generation being taught in a different way, they have all sorts of negative opinions on that. They say, oh, well, when I was in school or back in the day, when I was a student, this is how it was done. And now look at these students, you know, and, and how they're being taught. And it's all very negative, this idea of change. It's like people are very, very resistant to change. So we need change and yet we're afraid of change so much that it's preventing necessary changes from happening. Yes, and uh, also is uh, it becomes almost comical when you think about it, that how the world has changed in the last decade and the last few decades. And um, in the same way, like, this, this system itself and our society couldn't keep up to it. So we are in a, in a as you said, in information era, we have social media everywhere. We have, uh, we have everybody being the internet, being their phones almost every time, uh, almost every moment of the day that they can. And uh, the system, it kept like social media is something that definitely should be addressed in high school and the impacts of uh, in anxiety levels and impact of the mental health of the students. And uh, if I heard in one or two classes talking about social media, I think that's much. So, so uh, there's a like the word change and the system didn't keep up to it because it, since the speed was changed was so high, it couldn't. And then uh, it's now it's just a mess. Yeah, it's hard to uh, to take those important everyday topics that students need to hear about and, and how to incorporate those into the curriculum, which although teachers do have freedom in terms of what they teach every day, it, it is limited as we've, as we've discussed through the curriculum. So taking those important concepts. So do we wait, you know, 10 years for the next curriculum reform to take those topics and bring them in? To the, to the classes or do we, as teachers, do we take initiative and bring them into our classes and address those issues that are so important to students at the risk of not covering the content that we're supposed to be covering? So yeah, definitely it's, it's interesting to think about, about what are the topics that students truly need to us to cover right now for their mental health, for them to, uh, to be open to learning. Because if they're, if they're not, um, health, if they don't have a good mental health, then a lot of students 
their minds are closed and they can't focus on the actual course content that you're trying to teach. So it's like addressing these other topics can help students to um, open up and discuss what's bothering them and, and understand better what's going on in our world today and maybe open them up to, to being healthier learners overall. But yet at the same time, you know, it's like go, go, go in the classroom. This is what we have to do today. This is what we have the to do tomorrow. It's, yeah, it's the idea that the teachers, they want to help, they want to do the best job, but the curriculum, it looks like almost a cage in their creativity, how to teach the class, because, uh, oh, I want to do projects, I want to do, I want to help my students, but in the same way, I have 30 minutes to talk about functions, I don't have more than 30 minutes, I need to get functions done in 30 minutes, so... It's this idea that the teachers in the system are the ones that are trying to do the most, are the ones that are actually trying to help. And I don't think you become a teacher if you don't want to help uh, the younger generation. But, <laughs> well, we hope not. <laughs> yeah, we, we hope, hope not. Our teachers are there to help. <laughs> yeah, we have not. But in the same way is that uh, if you become a teacher, you want to help. You want to be there for them. And, but you got limited when you're, when you're talking about that. You, you don't have that choices almost every time mm -hmm. yeah this is uh, a this is the battle i face every day when i'm trying to figure out what to teach how to teach it it's always it always comes back to time honestly time is my worst enemy i find you slow down so that students can really know something or that you can take the time to to, to talk one-on-one -on -one with your students and then suddenly you're out of time and time's yeah. gone and and you're on to the next thing and i think it's it's our, definitely the biggest limiting factor that we have. Although, um, yeah, um, you, can you wouldn't that. dare suggest, you wouldn't dare suggest to students or teachers to increase the time of the classes. Oh, I wouldn't. No, no, no. Yeah, that, that's too far. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but in the same way, as they said uh, right now about excite levels, uh, the excite levels today of a high school students, a high school students and society as a whole, are, are higher than ever seen before. So the I think, as I said before about social media and also the idea that everything, all your future is, all your future is going to be dependent on, it's going to be dependent on if you go, if you get a good grade, if you go to a good university, if you don't go to a good university, if you get a good degree, if you get a degree, if you get a job, et cetera. And all of these just come back to your high school grades and the high schoolers know that. So they're so stressed because they cannot fail that stuff. They cannot fail that. They cannot be doing the wrong thing. And then they start realizing, oh, they have time, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, this, uh, it simply blocks more the students than it helps, I think. I agree. And actually, actually I, taught a, I taught for a few years in the adult education system. And it opened my eyes quite a bit in that there are so many students who I met there in adult education who were from such a variety of, of uh, experiences, different walks of life. Some students were new to the country. They were uh, new immigrants. Some students were um, older adults who had decided that they wanted a career change, but in order to uh, affect their career change, they had to return to school to get some prerequisites, some courses that they didn't do. And a lot of students were uh, you know, 17, 18, 19 year olds who, when they were in high school, un unfortunately, they either uh, didn't do well in a course, maybe they weren't, um, maybe because of their maturity level, maybe because of what was going on at home, maybe because of 
you know, as you mentioned, the massive amount of stress that is placed on students in that environment. And uh, for whatever reason, it, it didn't go well. But but there are, I think a lot of students don't realize that, and maybe this would help some of their anxiety or some of their stress levels, is that there are alternative routes. There are alternative pathways to getting to wherever you want in life. It doesn't have to be one straight uh, road that you take to get to where you need to go. You don't have to, you know, um, be the, the, the best number one student in your school and then graduate and go on to the uh, highest prestigious program and the highest prestigious university, you know, to get to where you want to go. There's alternatives and, and those alternatives are real options that students don't know about. So for example, let's say that for whatever reason, a student uh, didn't do well in their high school courses, they graduate and they could, for example, number one, go to the workforce just fine. They could get a job and they could learn on the job and they could excel in their job and live a very happy and um, fulfilling life. Or maybe they decide later on that they want to return to school. And actually, there are options for that. You could return to adult education. You could do all your courses in a, 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 honestly a less stressful environment because you work on your at your own pace. Okay, so if you go through one semester and you didn't master the course material, they say that's okay. Don't take the exam yet. Take the course again next semester until you've mastered the material and then write the exam and then continue, which is a much better, I think, um, situation in terms of reducing stress levels to say to a student, you know what, if you don't get it perfectly by the end of this term, it's okay. We could do it again next term, which we don't have that in, in high school because high school, it's these uh, school years that work. Here's your one year of school. When you're done that one year, you're moving on to the next year. Okay, and usually it's you're moving on whether you truly understood the material or not. Okay, so yeah, it's the idea that in the high school the main factor leading which way you are is not your knowledge, it's not if you know the stuff or not, it's not basically if you're comfortable with learning, it's your age. The classes are divided into age. It doesn't matter how you learn, it doesn't matter how well you learn the subject, you're gonna be in the class with the people in the same age, unless somebody had to repeat the year, but the main rule is you're going to be in the class with the people of your age. It doesn't matter if you know a lot more or a lot less. Yeah, it's very interesting to think about because I don't, I don't, uh, I mean, I went through a school system, you know, like, <laughs> like exactly like yours. Yeah, based on age. So I've never experienced uh, in terms of the school system being in a, in a class. Actually, you know what? It just occurred to me when I was in elementary school, I was in a split class one year where I had half of my grade was grade four and half of the the class was grade three, which was kind of an interesting mm. experience. I don't know how common that is though nowadays. I'm not sure, mm. but yeah, it's really based on age. And as you've seen in your own classroom, and you actually have a relatively small class right now. You're 22 students in your class. And, 24, I think. Mm. Uh, now we're 22, but oh, okay. Yeah, we had a transfer, so it's interesting that even within your class, students who are who are so uh, bright and focused and driven on their course material, even within that group, huge range of abilities, right? Mm -hmm. so yes. It's true, yeah. Why do, we, why do we group people based on age? I mean, yeah, it, right? it, yeah, it doesn't make the, the sense it's supposed to be. I think the idea before 
was that since you had to learn basic skills to go to the workforce only uh, when the school was created, it's easier to divide by age. So at a certain age, you can put a law that you cannot work before that age. And then once you leave school, you go directly to the workforce. But as I said, the school evolved, all the things uh, evolved. But this idea of having the exams, the idea of being graded and you have a personal grade that is going to be determined where you go later. And uh, the, that your age matters about your maturity and your knowledge, knowledge, sorry, not, damn it, knowledge level. It's sim it simply became inherited into the school system and nobody today questions about that because it's, it's so common that nobody thinks this might be a problem. Actually, I, I will disagree with you there in that no one questions it because from the perspective of being a, a mother, and my daughter right now, she's in daycare, but uh, I, I've seen around me, for example, um, other parents discussing this idea that, okay, when your child is four years old, often they go into uh, pre-kindergarten, five years old is kindergarten, six years old is grade one. But the school mm -hmm. year, in terms of like the months of the school year, so there's something called a cutoff date, which is in Quebec, it, so it, it is different in different provinces, but in Quebec, it's October 1st. So if you have a student who's born on, uh, let's say, June of a school year, uh, like June right before school year starts, they're pushed in to, the, to start school earlier at a, at a younger age than a student who's born in October. Because a student who's born, let's say, October 5th, actually, this is my niece, born October 5th, she has to wait a whole extra year before she's allowed to start school because she's too young at the cutoff date. Okay. Oh, so when you, it all starts actually at a very young age. I see these, um, these discussion boards all the time of parents saying, you know what, my child, they're, they're just not ready to start school yet, but they're supposed to start school because starting in grade one, school is mandatory. Yeah. Pre-kindergarten and kindergarten are, sort of optional, but, but grade one is, is mandatory. And if you think that you see differences in ability at the, uh, you know, at the high school level, you can imagine the difference of ability in the younger children. In the younger children, it's much more pronounced to see the differences in ability. So we take these young children who have done nothing in their life except, you know, learn through play, um, learn through doing, learn through playing, and we take sometimes they're very, very young and we take them and we put them in the school environment, which still has play at the young ages, but suddenly it's more rigid and they're in this class with a large number of students and, uh, you know, only, a, only one or two teachers and they're no longer getting that one-on-one -on -one attention. And especially if they're the youngest in their group, there's like some serious behavioral um, concerns and, and mental health concerns for these young children starting at a young age. So I think people are very aware especially at that moment in time, because I see a lot of discussion boards where they're talking about, okay, how can I request from the government permission to delay my child one year before they start school? So people really want to delay the student starting the school, which I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, if you have an opinion on that. Uh, I never thought in going so deep on that, but I have actually a personal example of that. Um, when uh, I'm coming from Brazil and there you have the option to go to, it's basically daycare, but it, it, it's in a school and you have the environment of a teacher taking care of uh, everyone. And then you have the option of going from since you're two years old to start grade one in the same school. 
And my mother decided like to take this option. And uh, I started developing and learning and getting more knowledge quicker than, uh, than they expected. And I got uh, the option of skipping grades, but my mother at the moment thought it was not good and decided to not skip grades. But, and uh, I kept going on. And when I was, I was in third grade, I was learning stuff from fifth grade. And uh, I, I, I would keep going like that. But then uh, when I got to fifth grade, uh, the, my teacher didn't like this idea of me learning more defense stuff and she cut me off. But and uh, but uh, it's like we saw there's examples, my example, and a lot of other students that they're gonna develop a lot faster in in one of the ideas. And they and this depends uh, other don't think that they are ready to go to school. They uh, there's a huge chance that they're actually right that it should that their children shouldn't be going to school at that moment. Mm-hmm. So uh, I the idea I think like the main idea they should be done is. It wouldn't change the system totally, but differentiating uh, the classes by knowledge and not by age, I think should be like the best way to do it. Be, having a 13-year-old that knows a lot of math, I think classes sacrifice, I don't think it would be a problem. So, so I think in an ideal world, in theory, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it just divides students based on ability, right? Divides students based on what they know and what they're capable of doing and how fast they're learning. But in reality, how do we do that? How do we actually do that? How do we take, think about the number of students we have entering our school system and how, what sort of tests do you give them to check on this, on this, uh, on their abilities? How do you, how do you take all of those students who normally just, you know, they hit a certain age mark and you just put them into school and they move up through the levels. How do you take all those students and adequately and appropriately and thoroughly evaluate their abilities. And let's throw in, let's throw in objectively as well. How do you objectively evaluate their abilities? I mean, especially at a young age, you're not gonna sit them down and have them do a test. What are you gonna, what are you gonna look at? Or are we gonna reevaluate students' abilities every year? So from a realistic perspective, there's so many questions and so many um, complications to this really lovely idealistic thought but uh, i think like that in uh, in high school you only have the option if you're gonna skip a year you can all uh i don't know actually mostly in, Can- in canada but in brazil if you're gonna skip a year, you have to skip the whole you don't have the option of going for some grades uh i think what you could work for this one is just giving the option to go for some grades not all of them and okay. uh it would have to make like uh, it would make, it would need uh, also need a reform in a way that the time that the classes happen. But uh, we're talking about reforming the system itself, so I, I think in a more realistic way that would be easier than reforming the whole system. Yeah, that's true. Um, there are some alternative schools that thankfully do this, uh, not enough. I don't think there's enough of them. Usually they're private too, so they cost a lot of money. Um, yeah, the, the, the social class has a huge impact in what education you're going to get. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, I mean, if you can afford a school with smaller class size, more individualized learning, more ability to work at your own pace, then that's fantastic. But it's very difficult to have that in the public system, which I think is what we're mainly talking about here. I mean, I think there are still some alternative schools that exist in the public system, but you can imagine that the demand for these schools is so high. 
so many parents want to send their kids or their uh, their children to these schools that again we come back to the issue of how do you decide who gets in how do you decide which of the applicants get accepted to the school because again we have the problem of there's limited space. time and limited space because yeah. if it was only limited space you could use like the time to take the applicants and stuff but you have a period of time you have like what what is the time to go into school six months that you have before the school year something like that what do you i mean? don't know no at the time like to enroll in the school system is like six months before that you need to contact with the school i think before the start of the school year i, I mean something like that. Uh, i think that it depends on the school i know a lot of elementary schools like to apply to register your child for elementary school it's usually done in the winter for the following september around nine months yeah you have nine months to look at the applicants and you have nine months to go to everybody and decide which one you can go into your school and you cannot go to school you never had one-on-one -on -one contact with this person so it's really it's really hard to determine that but in, in the same way if these discussions are not made about how we can change how we can do better it's going to keep in the same that it is and today we have uh, we have technology and it is advancing at a really quick rate and we think, oh, this technology is so incredible. But in the same way, the evolution of technology, the way that it develops is exponential. So 10 years from now, the technology is going to be even, even more incredible. And then it's going to keep going and evolving quicker and quicker and quicker. And if we keep postponing this discussion, it's going to reach a time where the school is, is going to be something totally different than what reality is going to be. And people are going to start leaving school and it's not going to be like today that we don't, you don't know exactly how to go in the real world, but they can get used to it and learn it when they leave. It's not the best scenario, but that it's possible. But it's like that the, sorry, it's like that the child is not going to have any chance if he leaves high school and, uh, and doesn't know about what they need to know. So I guess that's another another point to bring up is, can we, as a society, expect certain things to be taught at home? Can we can we somehow have some sort of uh, re reliable way of confirming and and ensuring and and helping parents to say, you know, these topics are necessary for your child. Can you teach some of these at home because we just don't have the time or the ability to teach them in our current school system? I know you're talking about reform and I definitely agree that having these conversations is important, but it comes back down to for now, until we make real change, can we can we use parents and say, hey, you know, we used to teach, we used to teach students a course called home economics, where um, it was like a bit of cooking and uh, sewing and different things that you might need in your life and now we, we don't teach that so where do students learn cooking I mean we hope from the home but is there a way that we could guarantee that they're being taught at home like a home study package for parents and, and students to do together or is that too much to ask parents you know who are already busy working full-time jobs and, and barely having a moment to rest so yeah and uh, also a lot of parents we're talking about the public school system so it's not as if most of the parents have a spare time to do some of that is is the is the when they get home and they have a time to spend with their child they want to just relax they don't want to go and teach 
but in a way that it could work, maybe give some incentive uh, incentives to the parents if done it. So uh, from the from the government itself and uh, something like that, and just bringing up ideas because they didn't thought about this. So it's a really good point, like how we could go to the school system and ask for a change there, but we can also try to look, isn't there a possibility to the parents change that? Yeah, mm -hmm. I never thought of that. It comes back to, you know, originally at the very beginning, you were talking about, you know, once upon a time, students learned everything they need to learn from their home, but now we expect students to learn everything they need to know from the schools. Well, can't we find some sort of balance between them? Because maybe some topics are better and easier to be taught from home, but then at the same time, you know, if parents don't have the time to do it, will they, will they teach those topics? But yes. it, uh, yeah, it gets really confusing. And also, and as you said, the values of inverted. So before the parents would teach everything and now the parents insist that school should teach everything. And I, uh, some, um, uh, I'm not gonna say everyone because it's actually the minority. They actually try to give the parent a duty to school itself and not to them. So it's, they try to not be a parent and say, no, you should teach me, my child, you should teach that. Be, uh, you should teach everything to my child. It's, it's not my job, it's our job to teach. So that in the same way that school has to be reformed, society needs to understand that the parenting role is still there. It cannot be defined, it cannot be put as uh, as technology, as the parent, or also as the school is the new parent. It still needs to have that conversation. It still needs to teach stuff. It's not just a good moment to be with your child. Of course, you're going to like it, but also it's a moment where you need to teach stuff to your, to your child. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's... Uh... It's definitely an interesting world that we live in right now and this how to figure out this balance between uh, yeah uh, i think like the world that we live now is so it's so divided into the idea that we need to figure out the balance for everything so that we have a technology we have something that you can research uh, 24 7 we have social media whereas there's an uh, infinity scroll that is basically, it's almost as gambling that you don't know what's gonna be next. You don't know what's gonna be the next post. Also as the Instagram uh, Instagram uh, culture where everybody has a perfect life. Everybody has the, uh, the perfect friends and the perfect everything. And you uh, somebody that is not okay mentally or it can even be okay, but it doesn't know how to react to that and just says, oh, I have problems. Oh, I'm not happy every time. And then you go to Instagram and you see everybody just saying that their life is perfect, that they're, they're happy. It's gonna cause it's gonna cause some problems that into society later, and nobody thought about that. Yes, it's true. Uh, that is a uh, is definitely a a concern now that social media and how people present themselves online online you can present yourself however you want that's sort of the beauty and the curse of it I guess I mean it's it's kind of amazing when you have someone who possibly has low self-esteem and then they get the opportunity to present themselves their persona however they want online they could they could make themselves however they want but that might be good for them behind their computer screen but it doesn't help them in reality it doesn't help them you know face face their peers every day or, or um, 
can go out into the world and be confident. So how do we, how do we take social media, which is so appealing? It has, you know, this, if we think about the chemistry of it, social media is up there with, um, you know, a, it, it's addictive. It causes a dopamine release in, uh, in people's brains, like a hormonal response that, okay, what's, I got to check my phone. I got to see if I got a message. I got to see if I got a like. I got to see what everyone's doing at all, every single moment. I have to know what the, uh, all the information is. Um, and it's, it's the brain, it's the addictiveness of the brain, just loving that hit of dopamine. Um, every time, you know, you get a like for your photo or, oh my God, I did a good post. Okay. So it's that, that uh, addictive nature of social media that makes it particularly dangerous because you can spend hours on social media and, and what have you really done, you know? And you didn't realize you spent hours. And you didn't and, realize uh, you spent uh, hours. Yeah, that's another problem. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, also uh, another thing that I, I think the most concerning about social media itself, it's not even the weakness that it, it creates, but uh, I am, uh, my age is the last generation that it could have like a childhood without social media. Uh, I, I my first social media was created pretty early. I was eight years old, but I was uh, but I only went to Instagram culture, etc. When I was twelve, is a young age, but it's not as young as people today that we saw childs with uh, children with eight years or uh, eight year old or seventy or seven year old youngers with social media and Instagram and all this. Is that okay? Uh, someone that was born in the, in the nineties, they're gonna be find looking to social media and if they're they're said they most is gonna most people are gonna understand like oh the, the other people here is not totally happy they're just saying it's this because that's what they want us to believe that's what they want to share and that's it but when it comes to a child they're gonna look down and say okay why do i have problems that they didn't don't like why am i so wrong why uh, and that's gonna generate like a problem where you're creating to this environment thinking everybody else has a perfect life but you don't so that's yeah, so, so we definitely have to address that at a, at a very young age in the elementary schools. And maybe at some point we have to almost, uh, well, I think there are age limits on uh, social media platforms. So I think you do have to be a certain age to have an account or you have to have parental permission. I'm not 100% sure about that actually. You, you have, but there's no confirmation that you need, you have that age. Yeah, you could. You could use so okay. yeah, it's exactly. You just go and create an account, and then you use it. Or another point is a lot of these children don't have uh, the cell phone for themselves. They use their parents to do stuff, and they go to the social media on their parents' phone. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, so it's really. Uh, <laughs> it almost sounds extreme, but like, can we can we just shut down all the social media out there? Can we almost take a, a step back in time and just say this was a mistake and get rid of it but no no we can't do that but um so okay what do we do about that i mean it you have extreme differences here now in terms of what parents believe is acceptable for their children so some parents some households are very strict and they say you know you only get a maximum of 20 to 30 minutes of screen time a day and you may not it's you're not allowed to have a facebook account or a instagram account or whatever it is um, and then other households, students have free, uh, kids have free reign and, and can we, it's, it's very difficult for us to say, oh, one way is the, is the right way because every, every situation is totally unique, but as a whole, you're right. It's, there's a lot of complications here in terms of 
what are students gaining from these platforms and are they actually even though they feel positive when they're using these platforms well hopefully they they feel positive but uh what are they really gaining from them truly and yeah so the so social media is based on the like the good part of social media is based on the concept that you can connect with people all around the world and you can connect from people that is not next to you but in the same moment is you are connected with people that are not around you but it is connecting with people that are sitting across the table so yeah I, I how good is actually that I think we got a little off topic because we could probably talk for seven <laughs> hours about social media, but uh, yeah. The so system, how do we? Yeah. How do how we? How do we implement that? Yeah, implement that in our education system, especially nowadays. I mean, I try to take uh, a phone away from a student in class, try to get them to engage with their peers next to them, get them to get engage in what's really going on in reality right around them, and uh, it's you get quite a backlash when you try to confiscate someone's phone and. And sometimes you don't really have much of a choice because you really want them to engage with the world around them. It's uh, a positive thing. So yeah. how do we navigate that? How do we, how do we make sure that when students come to school, they're actually there to engage with the people around them and engage with the material and not just sit there on their phones, you know, actually in some distant, distant world. Nice. Um, it's basically like the question of the century almost. Yeah. How how do we do that? And, um, okay. So if we had to, uh, if we had to like give one thought, like what is what could should change and could change relating to the school system in the school system or society itself, what would you say? Oh boy, that's a loaded question. Uh, you said one thing, but but can I say two things? <laughs> you, can go, you can go for it, it's just, just a wrap. Yeah. <laughs> so I think one thing would be, um, although again, this is a very bigger, it's a bigger issue. It would be somehow in some way, figuring out the way, figuring out how to manage our budgets to have smaller class sizes. Now I say budgets, money is always at play here because if you have smaller class sizes, ultimately you need more teachers, right? more so, space etc and more space as well but if we could just take our class sizes down a notch i'm not talking down two students i'm talking about if on average our class sizes were more around the you know 15 student students in a class mark i mean i think that would be much much easier to actually engage with every single student to a high level and i think that engagement with every student and really treating them as individuals, as unique individuals, in terms of how they learn best and how they interact with the material and the, the other students in the class and yourself as an educator. Um, I think that would make a huge difference in the type of students that are graduating from our schools. Of course, there's the reality, as mentioned, with budget and space, but in an ideal world, I'm not talking about one-on-one -on -one lessons, but just smaller class sizes because a 30-person class um, it is very difficult to meet the needs of all students in your class. It's virtually impossible. So if on one side we could somehow reduce those class sizes, which you know is the is the ideal, then that would be great. 
Another thing would be having a little bit more freedom with the curriculum to address some of those um, current issues like social media concerns or like, um, you know, uh, COVID, how to address COVID-19. Maybe we should just have a, a whole class about COVID-19 and reducing our stress and better understanding what's going on in our world. Um, and like the closest course we have to a course that addresses modern modern social issues or current issues is I guess the ERC class. War and also Culture World in Sec 5. Yeah, but that's just in secondary five, right? Contemporary world. Yeah. And, and if you think about the ethics and religious culture course, uh, we only see the students three days out of 10. So not only do we have a lot of possible material to cover in that course, now that one is not as strict because there's no exam, it's just stuff that would be very useful to students, stuff that would be very valuable to students. Um, but we see the students the least out of all the courses. Um, now, contemporary world, how many times do you have that out of 10 days? I think it's two or three. Two or, or three. three. So again, it's 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 an important course, and I'm so glad it exists for students. It's so necessary. And yet, you know, we put it, we've put a, a hierarchy in our courses in terms of how often you get to have that course, how often you get to have the material and discuss the material content of that course compared to say a math course. So of course, you know, as a math teacher, I wish I could see my students every single day and teach them math every single day to have a better understanding. But I also, in the back of my mind, understand that, you know, why is my course considered a little bit higher on the, on the academic hierarchy than let's say contemporary world. Yeah. Um, now, I hope I, I don't, I hope I don't get into any trouble saying that. I hope no other teachers are like, hey, wait, my course is better. I'm agreeing that why is there a hierarchy in the courses, right? Why do we give yeah. some courses a higher, uh, a higher period count in the total in our 10 day cycle in our school. So yeah, exactly. It's the idea that they try to divide based on the uh, saying, oh, there's more stuff to be seen, but in the same way, they are deciding what stuff has to be seen. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, so just, I guess those two things are, are my two biggest wishes would be uh, smaller class sizes because you mentioned earlier about grouping students by age, but I think they would be less significant. It would seem less significant if we had smaller class sizes. Because mm -hmm. with a smaller class size, automatically you can differentiate a little bit better. So the stronger students who are learning at just a, a quicker rate, you can you can have more time and, and to really direct them towards their path. And the students who need a little bit of extra help, you'll have a bit more time to give them that little bit of extra help. But uh, as well, having a more flexible curriculum would be it would be nice in an ideal world. It's not our reality, but an ideal world it would be nice because then we'd have more ability to address those concerns that pop up. You know that you don't necessarily expect something to happen, but then it does. So you would love to take you know 20, 30 minutes, an hour, or you know a whole week worth of classes to address an issue, but you just you just don't have the flexibility in the curriculum to give you the time to do it. Okay. Uh, thank you for uh, for conversing about the, the this topic, uh, Miss Pence, and thank you for having for coming. No, oh, well, thanks for having me, Bruno. It was uh, it was wonderful. <laughs>